I'd like to start today with a welcome. Start intentionally. Start with some of the best words of welcome that I have ever read. It's from the science writer Bill Bryson. Some of you know him. His great book called A Short History of Nearly Everything. These are his opening words to his book. And just really kind of try and feel them today as you sit here. He writes, welcome and congratulations. I am delighted that you could make it. Getting here wasn't easy, I know. In fact, I suspect that it was a little bit more difficult than you realize. To begin with, for you to be here now, trillions of drifting atoms had to somehow assemble in an intricate and intriguingly obliging manner to create you. It's an arrangement so specialized and so particular that has never been tried before and will only exist this once. For the next many years, in parentheses, we hope, these tiny particles will uncomplainingly engage in all the billions of deaf cooperative efforts necessary to keep you intact and let you experience the supremely agreeable but generally underappreciated state known as existence. Why atoms take this trouble is a bit of a puzzle. Being you is not a gratifying experience at the atomic level. For all of their devoted attention, your atoms don't actually care about you. Indeed, don't even know that you are there. And then as an aside, think about this. It is a slightly arresting notion that if you were to pick yourself apart with tweezers, one atom at a time, you would produce a mound of fine atomic dust, none of which had ever been alive, but all of which had once been you. The bad news, before it was the good news, the bad news is that atoms are fickle and their time of devotion is fleeting. Even a long human life only adds up to about 650,000 hours. Still, you may rejoice that it happens at all. Generally speaking, as far as we can tell in the universe, it doesn't, so far as we can tell. Whatever else life may be, at the level of chemistry, life is curiously mundane. Carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen, a little calcium, a dash of sulfur, a light dusting, a very ordinary elements. Nothing you wouldn't find in any ordinary drugstore, and that's all you need. The only thing special about the atoms that make you is that they make you. This is, of course, the miracle of life. The miracle of life, what the Buddhists call the realization of the preciousness of human existence. I mean, Buddhism, for as rational as people talk about that religion, it's so rational, it has insight, all these great things. It also has wildfire out there in mythology, and we have to get through all these stages of existence, the Buddhists say, just to arrive here. So whether we agree with that mythology or not, realizing the preciousness of human life. The ancient Israelite book of beginnings, which now we call Genesis, before the snake and the garden and, and everything got complicated and the apple, which wasn't an apple, was a fruit. And by the way, Satan isn't in there at all. When the creation came about, simply one word described it. It was in Hebrew tov, good. And because, unfortunately, because of that snake and that apple and Eve and Adam and everything and the garden and the lost innocence all got blown out of proportion... And theologically, some folks invented this thing called original sin. Well, some folks, especially in the Christian tradition, have gone back to that first word, that tov, that goodness, and started to talk about not original sin, but original blessing. 
preciousness, goodness, miraculousness, blessedness. How to maintain conscious contact with this element of our life. Indeed, not just an element of our life, but the very heart and center of life. This is the meaning of the message series that I'm starting today. How to maintain conscious contact with the mystery, the blessing, the preciousness. There's a phrase, beginner's mind, that a Zen teacher named Sunyuru Suzuki referred to. It says this, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, but in the expert's mind, there are few possibilities. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, but in the expert's mind, there are few. Maintaining our beginner status, recommitting ourselves regularly to being beginners in this life is an antidote to one of the complaints that I hear most regularly, not just from other people's mouths, but from my mouth as well. There's not enough time. Where does the time go. Things are speeding up. I don't have all the space all the time. I need to get all my stuff done. And it takes on sometimes really a plaintive complaint. Have you ever heard yourself saying this? And it's been said to me a number of times. My life is passing me by. That's when the feeling that we don't have enough time starts to take on the sensation that maybe life isn't really so great after all. Being a beginner is a way to learn to slow down in this constantly and indeed speeding up on-demand world and to really experience the miracle, the preciousness, the blessing that still is part of our lives. In fact, never goes away, but we have to realize it. Now, we have many choices about how, if we want to get in touch with this blessing, this preciousness, this miraculousness, we could... You might. Maybe you're already planning this. If so, please announce yourself right here, right now. You could drop it all. You could drop out of the rat race. You could go live off the land, off the grid. You could go move to an ashram, a monastery. You could move completely out of society. And how many of you, how many of us are planning to do that immediately? I'm not talking about a two-week retreat. I'm talking about planning to do that. Okay, none of us. So perhaps we will need slightly more... I don't believe that for a second. (laughs) Thanks for playing along, though. So we're going to need to make some different choices if we're not going to change our circumstances absolutely to start to slow down and become a beginner again. If we can't change our circumstances absolutely, at least not right at the start, we can change our attitude. We can start to adopt that mindset, and it's much more than a mindset, it's more of a heart set, it's more of a way of perceiving the world, in that we can always be beginning. What does it look like? What does it feel like to vow to be a beginner? Well, there's a woman named Kathleen Norris who is not a member of a monastery, but over the years as a writer has spent time in monasteries, and it has helped her kind of reset, kind of refocus, kind of turn around her perspective on the time in her life. She says that what she realizes in the monastery This is a Benedictine monastery. This is a Catholic place, so it's still Western, but she says it has a different operation of time. Not everything is a hard start and a hard end, and the minute we're done with that, we move on to something that's entirely different next. She says, no, the cycle of life in the monastery is much more cyclical. Things come around and around and around, and they change, but there's patterns of repetition. She says that what she learned in the monastery is that nothing ever really ends. (laughs) 
And if nothing ever really ends, then we might as well learn to slow down if we're not going to finish it anyway. To learn to be a beginner is to learn to adopt this kind of mindset, even if we're very far away from a monastery or anything off the grid of our lives. To change our attitude, which is to say our way of perceiving, is to begin to change our interactions with each other. And as we change our interactions with each other, we start then to change our circumstances. We might move maybe just a little bit, maybe a little incrementally, but I got to tell you, for all of us, including me, the more that I can shift from my life as a series of meeting deadlines, just an infinite series of meeting deadlines, to creating lifelines of connection and beginning and listening, I will take any degree of that change I can get. Because it means that what we are doing is that we're not taking our lives for granted. That appreciation and gratitude are not things that are far away, but are in fact as natural as the breath is. Now many of us, and I know I feel this too, might feel a resistance to that word beginner. You might not want to call yourself a beginner. Because if we're going to call ourselves a beginner, we might have to utter these words. I'm not sure how to do my job exactly. I'm not sure how to be a student right now exactly. I'm not sure how to be the best parent I can right now exactly. I'm not sure how to be the best spouse right now exactly. And we might say to ourselves, perhaps projecting out into our future, projecting with worry, if I'm always a beginner, doesn't that mean that I'm never making any progress? (laughs) Doesn't that mean I'm just spinning my wheels? Doesn't that feel frustrating to us? But the reality is, is that it works exactly the opposite. It is the inability to admit that we are beginners and can maintain what it is to be a beginner that keeps us most stuck. Now, I heard an example of this the other day, and I think it applies to all of us in the general sense, if not the specific. You all have heard of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, many people, and I know quite a number of people like this, people with PTSD, who in seeking to submerge the difficult thing that happened to them or the difficult thing that they did, and again, we may not be right there in the PTSD, but difficult things happen to us. Well, there's this phrase that maybe some of us have used. I know I've used it. It's called drinking to forget. Well, there's a study I read recently that actually drinking to forget has the exact opposite reaction. (laughs) That when we drink to forget something that is difficult, it actually locks us in, cements the experience right there. And in seeking to get away from our lives, all we do is we throw ourselves right back into the place we don't want to be. Beginner's mind, being a beginner, says something different. Let's work with our lives as they are. And if we can do that, we can recognize that beginner's mind, beginner's heart, beginner's hands opens us up to the change and the transformation that so many of us seek. Our great teacher Thoreau said, change, all change is a miracle to behold and it's a miracle that's happening right now. Change is not just down the road. Change is right here in this moment. Where do we start? If we want to be a beginner, let's say you're intrigued by this idea. Perhaps you're feeling too much. I don't have enough time. Where's all my time going? My life is passing me by. Well, welcome to the beginner's club. 
We'll just start as a beginner's club right here today. Because the only place that we can start as a beginner is right here. We cannot regret the fact we have not been a beginner for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, 80 years. All we can do is begin right now. I had a professor at college who was well known about a decade before I got there as, how can I put this delicately, a drunk. He was well known as an exceedingly bright guy but someone who was very, very damaged. And by the time I got to school, he had gotten sober. And he was also known as a wonderful mentor, a wonderful guide. One of my fellow students, snarkily, we didn't say snarkily in 1988, but that's what we would have said now, and completely ungenerously said about this philosophy professor, he's just making up for lost time. Now, as someone who wasn't sober then but is now, and as someone who wasn't middle-aged then but demographically is now, I get it. That professor was so caring and so present, not because he was making up for lost time, but because he awoke from a trance and a dream of dysfunction and dis-ease, and he knew what it was to waste time. He came to make the most and the best of the time that he had. If you feel as you sit here together right now today that you've wasted time, this is a choice point for you. Today's a choice. This moment's a choice. You can choose to keep wasting your time. You can say, I don't know how, and this scares me, and I don't want to be a beginner, and I don't want to feel vulnerable, and I don't want to say I don't know how. Or... You can try something new. Today, you can try something new. You can begin to cultivate that sense of that being a beginner. And from that, find a clear intention to live here. The only place any of us can ever live and the one place so many of us are always fleeing from. To come back here. So you can do this, this intention to be here It provides us with a very clear orientation. Kind of like, you know, let's say we're at the mall. And I've been going to the Apple store at King of Prussia for God knows how long. And I still have no idea where it is. I mean, I I know you enter and it is at the mall or the gazebo or the loft or whatever they call those two arms of it, you know. I can never find it. I walk in and I'm just as perplexed as the first time. Do I go around this way or do I go straight that way? And so what do I do? I look. I don't think this is actually King of Pressure, but you get the point. I look for the X. Ah, I am here. You are here. X, as we say, marks the spot. Not coincidentally, X marks the spot for treasure. And whatever treasure we develop in life always comes from us being here. Here's the interesting thing. The minute we find out where we are, something new arises, something we might not have expected, which is the other meaning of X in simple form. Well, I hope it's simple for many of us, but I was not a natural at algebra, but I think I've learned how to master this, I believe. X is also the unknown. X marks the spot. And X is the unknown quantity of our lives. We can figure out the X in this moment. 
But into the next moment, if we want to be there, we will find new X's that are unknown as well too. This is equally and always true. We can always realize where we are. And the minute we realize where we are, we are simultaneously aware of all that we simply don't know. Our life resides at the intersection of our hereness and our unknowingness. I mean, this is the essential piece of a healthy spiritual life. This is the heart of one of the most famous prayers there is, the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That is about recognizing where we are and recognizing what is unknown, and both those things are simultaneously necessary, and we can't just figure it all out immediately. This is everyday kind of work. This is beginner's kind of work, because to really pray this prayer, not just to say it, but to have it filter down into us, we have to get in touch with the things we can shape and the things we can't change, and to know it. Now, to really feel, and I mean feel, the nearness of hereness, get in touch with your senses. John Kabat-Zinn, perhaps America's most famous mindfulness teacher, talks about coming to our senses. Like coming to our senses means, like right now, noticing touch, taste smell, temperature. We cannot think our way into the nearness of hereness, although many of us try to think our way out of being here. To really feel what it is to be here means getting in touch with the senses. It's the easiest way that we can do it. And by the way, this is why all world-hating theologies, all forms of virulent fundamentalism, they start and end with despising the body. They mistrust the senses. But instead, if our lives are actually not under original sin, but through original blessing, then we can get in touch with this world through the power of our senses. We can most especially get in touch with this moment through the power of what and who we love. I'm going to talk more about this next week in talking about beginning as an act of be loving. So to feel our hearness, feel our bodies in this moment. Here we are. Feel our cough. Yes, I mean, that's an act. If we can feel that, we can be here. And if we are here, then we can also start to approach that other X. How to embrace the uncertainty, the unknown quantity of what it means to be alive in this moment. One of the most powerful ways that we can do that is by not just saying, hmm, okay, I'll deal with uncertainty, but actually starting to relish and fall in love with that phrase, I don't know. Just like I love you, it's another powerful three-word phrase. I heard a story recently that brings this really to mind and a heart for me. It's about a woman who was taking a flight and she had a layover and she actually found that she had a whole bunch of time between when her flight arrived and when the next flight was going to take off. So she went to a newsstand, got a little package of cookies, kind of like what we'll see here, and she grabbed a newspaper. And the airport was very, very crowded. And so she went to one of these little cafes and she found that there was one seat open and it was a two-seater and the other seat was occupied by a guy who was sitting around. And he kind of nodded and said, yeah, have a seat. So she opened her paper and she started eating her cookies. 
They were good cookies. She really liked them. And while she had her head buried in the paper and her mouth in the cookies, and she started to hear something, a little crinkling noise. And she was stunned to find out that the guy who had invited her to sit down was eating her cookies. I mean, she was so stunned, she started to get kind of angry, and, and, and she was so shocked, she just, like, buried her head further in the paper and just started eating the cookies a little more faster, because she started to feel that scarcity thing, like there wouldn't be enough cookies left for her, and he just kept eating the cookies alongside her, and she didn't say anything, she just sat there and got angrier and angrier, and finally she heard one more crinkle, and felt the guy get up and leave, and she kind of pulled down her shield of the newspaper, And she looked and she saw there was one cookie remaining. She was like, oh, great. This idiot left me one cookie. They were mine to begin with. She ate the last cookie, went to her boarding area, got to her gate, called her flight. She reached into her bag to get her boarding pass. And she felt something odd. A bag of cookies. She had been eating that guy's bag of cookies. And he had left her another cookie. He didn't have to. Now, this is you in this moment. What do you do when you reach into your bag and you find out you are sharing someone else's cookies? What do you feel? Is it don't? Is it shame? Is it anger? And now not even anger at the guy who was stealing your cookies, just anger at this whole freaking big mess. Or do you use this, do we use this as a moment of profound inquiry and insight? That this moment of thinking what we knew is not true is in fact a beautiful moment. The physicist Richard Feynman, some of you know him, wrote a wonderful book a number of years ago, a collection of his essays called The Pleasure of Figuring Things Out. Now, the pleasure of figuring things out is kind of what happens when you're really kind of overwhelmed with awe and wonder and you've got a scientific mind on like mine and, and, and you write a book like Bill Bryson did, The Short History of Nearly Everything. And that's kind of directed to the outer world, the physical world. But that same attitude, the pleasure of figuring things out. We can direct that same capacity for insight inward. When we recognize our uncertainty, when we recognize those moments where we have rushed in with all kinds of assumptions. And yes, we all know if we break down the word assumption and assume what it means. If we hold open that space of uncertainty, what I thought was true is not true. If we hold open that space, we can have insight. This can make profound differences in our experience of the world. If you've been around for a while, I've talked openly, honestly, about the fact that part of my makeup is that I am prone to depression and anxiety. I know this does not make me different from you, from many of you, or from those that you love. Now, my depression and anxiety 
has not been the way it was 20 years ago. Thank God. And yet, it does crop up every once in a while. That dark cloud can hover over my head very, very quickly. It's part of my karma, my energy, my soul. I've learned not to hate it or loathe it. I've learned to work with it. One of the things, if you struggle with anxiety or depression, that's most difficult is that the voice starts to come that says, it will always be like this. Do you know that voice if you struggle? It will always be like this. Things cannot change. And because of many practices that I have chosen for myself, both formal and even more informal, I've learned to say in a loving way, that's just my mind. (laughs) That's just the fear. That's just the depression. And it won't always be like this. In that moment, I've learned to be a beginner with my own difficulty. And I know many of us have learned to be beginners with our own difficulties as well. Because to be able to do this is to just learn to take it a little bit more damn easy on ourselves. And not add to our struggle all the judgment that unless we're absolutely feeling as good as we should possibly feel. And whatever that book says, living your best life now. Well, sometimes living your best life right now is simply saying right now is a cruddy moment and I can accept it. It's not a permanent high. That's, that's the seeds of addiction right there. Learning to open to the unknown. Learning to, with a sense of curiosity and trust work with our lives. It takes work. Sometimes hard work. Well, strike that, always hard work. But even more, there's one thing harder than that, which is choosing not to do it and staying stuck and feeling like we don't have enough time and winding ourselves right down into the ground and feeling like we'll never move or we'll never make a start. So to be a beginner is really to learn the art of love and self-forgiveness and self-acceptance, and to recognize that the most powerful question we can ask ourselves in this life, to recognize ourselves and accept ourselves, is not as many religions would ask us, were you there? Were you there at the time of revelation? Were you there during Jesus' life, Moses' life, Buddha's life? And by the way, you couldn't be there, so just believe a whole bunch of other people who supposedly were there and got it 100% absolutely accurate. No, the question is not, were you there? And the question is also not going to be either the most important one. Where are you going to be? Where are you going to be on Judgment Day? Where are you going to be when you have to account for your sins? It's not the most important question. By the way, Emerson, our great teacher, said that we really wake up when we realize that every day is Judgment Day. Now, the most important question is, are you here? Are you here? Are we here? Today, living at that intersection of the nearness to our hereness and to the openness to all that unknown quantity and all that uncertainty, may we live with both in mind and both in our open hearts. Today, 
May you begin. May we begin. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. O oh, divine invitation to this moment. Divine invitation to face vulnerability and accept it. To face acceptance and know that we are accepted and acceptable. To know the grace of our being not as a hoped for moment to come or looked back at forlornly and said, ah, I had it then. But to know here and now, running through our lives in the deep channel of time, that here today we can begin. Here we are. And it is good. Amen.